So James chapter 1, verses 2 through 15. So as you're turning, this, we need to make note that this is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, if you recall James, he did not believe Jesus while he was alive. It wasn't until his resurrection that James believed in Jesus. So we're going to be in James chapter, two, James chapter 1, reading verses 2 through 15. And thus says the Lord, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its, flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. May God bless the reading and teaching of his word. You may be seated. Um, pray pray for me. Pray with me as Father of, of all wisdom and all strength. We come before you um, as needy beggars that need the bread that, that causes the wellspring of life to to burst forth in us. And, and we can go to you and we can ask because you are our Father and you give generously and without reproach. And Father, I pray for my people, the people that you have given me, that you grant them wisdom and, and for, for the wisdom to count it joy and suffering, to let steadfastness take its, have its full effect. Father, for the impoverished brother that he can see in glory in his exaltation and the rich brother to see in glory in his humiliation. Father, for wisdom drives us to you and wisdom sees that this world is not our home, but we're just passing through. And Father, I pray for the wisdom that lets us see where temptation leads, it leads to death. But in you, wisdom, wisdom, godly wisdom points to you where there is life. And that is what I pray for my people, ask all these things in the founder and perfecter of our faith, the risen Lord Jesus. So, Cody, I've got, I've got to make one uh, correction to your introduction. I'm no longer at Midwestern. I'm at Liberty now. I change seminaries about as much as you change trucks. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that, that, that's it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, well. Y'all voted for me, so, and you confirmed me, so it's your fault. So, but <laughs> I, so I, have the, I have the pleasure of introducing myself in, in the book of James as we begin the Elder Series 
uh, through James, being doers of the word. So my, my name is, what Cody said, Daniel Nance, and I'm your newest elder, your, your youngest elder. I'm a husband to Allison, father of, of, of three, seminary student and Marine, and then Marines who's serving in the Army, because I'm not going to say um, what they call the person serving in the Army. It just causes indigestion, and yeah, once a Marine, always a Marine. So, yeah. So, kind of my background is, is around 2012, 2013, my faith became my own. That it, it transitioned from the faith that my parents handed down into me and ingrained in me, and I began to take ownership of it. That I began to search its depth, plumb its depths, find out, you know, about the one whom I claim, the one whom I whom I love. And so it, it became personal. It, you know, it, it shifted. It became live. It had vitality to it. And then 2015, as I'm transitioning out of the Marine Corps, we, we moved back to Alabama, and we're looking for, searches, for churches, and you know, we knew Cody from way back in the, in the day, and so we ended up here, and we've never left. And like I said, I have, I have history with Cody. I've got history with Andrew and Joe, and they had the pleasure of being my youth pastor when I was young. Now, if you were to ask Andrew um, to describe me as a, as a youth student, he would tell you that uh, I was a young punk. Well, Andrew, things have changed, man. I'm not as young, so. Yeah, so that, that's me. So if you've been wondering who the guy standing down here that, that looks angry all the time, it, it's me. The, the H in Marine stands for happy. So the, the letter of James. All right. So like I said, the, the letter of James is often called, or the letter of James is, is written by James, the brother of Jesus, and it's often called the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. Why? Because there's, there's wisdom in James, but there's more than wisdom. It's practical, that, that it's practical for our life because it contains admonitions, it contains exaltations, and it contains imperatives. So the key to James, though, is that James is an absence of Christ. What James does is he takes Jesus' teachings, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, and applies it to the experiences of those whom are reading his letter. So he takes Jesus' teaching of have joy in suffering, and he he applies it to the brothers by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. He takes the ask, and you will be given to you, and says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God for it. Talks about how riches fade away, and applies it to the rich person, and then he goes on. So, you, so when we read James, always have Jesus' teachings in the background. It'll make sense. That way, you won't take it, you won't read it, and beat yourself over the head with a, with a, with a moral hammer. So James is a call to genuine faith, but, it's, but genuine faith isn't merely acknowledging right concepts, but it's right living in accordance with those concepts. But James isn't without its, without its controversy. You may have heard that James and Paul argue against each other, that James says you are saved by your works, and Paul says that you are saved by faith. Because after all, Paul says in Ephesians that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Yet James will say in chapter 2, verse 24, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we see this apparent contradiction. And so think of it this way, because they don't contradict, okay? But think of it this way. You're going to write a letter to two groups, okay? And you're going to write about what Cody has preached about through June, who is my identity? 
You're going to take Genesis and the creation of man, and, and you're going to write to one group that's in the deep south, and you're going to say, hey, God created male and female in his image. He created them. And so you can take that scripture to the group that's in the deep south, and you can launch off into application, because you don't have to really lay a foundation, because we're all familiar where and in whose image we were created in. But that other group, that other group is somewhere in the northeast or on the west coast. And you're going to write to them about the Genesis story, about the creation of man. And so you're going to have your work cut out, because then you've got to identify who God is, that he's not some nebulous being. Then, if you get through that, now you've got to talk about what a man is and what a woman is. So you've got your work cut out for you. Paul and James are the same way, that Paul is writing to Gentiles, and therefore he has to lay a theological, theological foundation before he applies it. James can just haul off into application because his people have that, that pre-existing knowledge because they're Jewish Christians. And so we arrive at, at, at the text. So the text is going to be about wisdom, wisdom for the Christian life. Now, I'm a, I'm a simple man, so I need a working definition of what wisdom is so wisdom is according to james in verse 17 chapter 3 verse 17 but wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere it's great see what a picture of it is but how do i how do i use wisdom what is is wisdom and so i would submit to you that the definition of wisdom biblical wisdom is the that wisdom is the skillful application of biblical truths. And so we're going to start off, I'm going to give you a scheme of maneuver, so that way you know how we're going to, how we're going to work through the text. We're going to start in verse 5 and 8, and then, because we're going to define wisdom, we're going to see where it comes from, how do we source it, and, and then we're going to take that wisdom, and then we're going to apply it to life. We're going to apply it to the trials that arise from the outside. We're going to apply it to the poor brother, we're going to apply it to the rich brother, and then we're going to apply it to the trials that arise from within. So James says in verse 5, going through 8, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James instructs us that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask for it. But how do we, how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? Well, the screen says we must ask God for wisdom. James instructs us, let him ask God. That he is directing us to the one who gives wisdom we can't know anything apart from god he is the basis of our understanding he is a source of wisdom because god is all-knowing you may have your omniscient that god is all-knowing he has decreed the end from the beginning he even knows what word you will say before you even say it as the psalmist in psalm 134 says so if we want wisdom we must go to the source now notice how god gives wisdom God gives wisdom generously and ungrudgingly. Your text is going to say without reproach. But, but he gives, it pleases, pleases God to give to his children. Think about the, for you with kids, okay, or you know, you've heard stories about your grandparents. Think of the open-handedness in which grandparents give to the grandkids. 
Think about that. Like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that when my dad found out that he was going to have a little girl, first grandchild, I'm sure he went to the mirror and was practicing, yes, baby, anything you want. Amen. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll go. You want me to come get you? I'm sure he promised. Because when my, when, my, when my dad and my parents became grandparents, they all of a sudden had McDonald's money. <laughs> right? That, that hey, I, I, I want some McDonald's. We got McDonald's at home. No, it's, no, we don't. But now, Elia, Emlyn, Anderson, they want anything? I'll just call, Grand, I'll just call Papa. <laughs> no, but God gives in the same way. God doesn't withhold good things from his children. He's, he's, not, gonna, he's not like me, okay? He's not like me. That every now and then I get a hankering for carrot cake, okay? And so I'll clandestinely go ask Allison if she wants some cake from, from public because I don't want the, the kids to hear because I'm not so generous when it comes to food. <laughs> uh, and she'll, she, you know, she either says, yeah, it doesn't matter, whatever. And so I'll quietly walk over to the, to the key bowl and I'll grab the keys because, again, I want to go quietly and I'm going to go by myself. But inevitably, those keys rattle that key ball, and there's all of a sudden, they're standing, all three, in front of me, and Elia's asking, where are you going? And Emily's like, I want to come, I want to come, and then Anderson's like, I come, I come, I come. Well, cover's blown, so we all got to go. So load all three of them up, and we head off to Publix, and, and I get, we go over to where the bakery counter is, I get them a cookie, and then we go get them cookies or brownies or whatever they want, and then we go back home, and then I get them situated, okay? With cookie in hand, favorite TV show, and I sneak off, because I'm going to eat my carrot cake in peace by myself. And I can, I get through that wrapper very quietly, and then, but there's, I mean, if you've seen the containers, they got those divots that pop, and you, if somebody can figure out how to open it without making a sound, please let me know, because I could really use that. So it pops, cover's blown. So what I start doing, I start shoving fistfuls of, of carrot cake into my mouth because I don't want to share. Because, <laughs> you know, again, I'm, it's food. Um, but they come up. And so Elia's like, hey, I want a bite. I want a bite. And then Emlyn, precious Emlyn's like, I want the vanilla. I want the, she's, she's smart. Right? She, she wants the frosting. And then Anderson's over here sticking his tongue out going, ah, ah, ah. Like. And so what do I do? I, I give them cake. But is it generously and ungrudgingly? No, it's because they're staring at me and making me feel uncomfortable. But how does, how does God give? God takes his carrot cake and he sits down on the couch with his kids and he starts feeding and shoving fistfuls of, of carrot cake into, into their mouth. And, and it's, I mean, it never ends. Like it's just constant carrot cake for God's children. God gives generously and ungrudgingly when we ask in faith. But James' statement contains that troubling statement, that that troubling component, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Because it it begs the question, how do I ask and not doubt? We all doubt. If I were to sit up here and tell you that I've never been in a pinch and asked for deliverance and and that request not contain an ounce of doubt, I, I would be a liar. That I have often prayed for rescue, and immediately, as I said, amen, the thought of, is God coming, come to my mind? Well, I want you to hear that if you've ever asked with doubt, I want you to know that God can't overcome your belief. 
God can overcome your belief. And here's why I say that, because if you think of Mark 9, when the father of the demonic boy, that that demon-possessed boy, goes to Jesus, and what does he say? If you can, have compassion on my son. And what does Jesus say? He says, if you can, well, anything is impossible for those who believe. And how does the father respond? Does he respond as a stoic and says, I believe? No. He cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, how does Jesus respond? Does he say, oh, your request contains an ounce of doubt? Can't heal the boy? No. He heals the boy. He has compassion. So what does it mean to ask in faith? It means to ask with confidence. We can ask in confidence because we trust in the character of the one whom we ask. Notice how a child will ask his parents versus a stranger. That if a child needs something from his parents, they will boldly go to their parents and make their request known. That my kids will boldly come and get between myself and whomever I'm talking to, usually Allison, and go, Dad, 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 I need this. I I want this. Versus back in Publix, and they want a cookie from the baker. Free cookies. Well, how do they ask? Well, they hide. And who ends up having to ask for the cookie? Me. What's the difference between the baker at the Publix counter and, and, and me? It's the relationship. It's the relationship that that my kids know me. They know that when they come to me and ask, I'm going to give it. That I'm going to protect them, I'm going to love them, and I'm going to protect them at all costs, even if it means the expense of my life. That they know that any threat that comes against them, I will eliminate that threat by any means possible. Brothers and sisters, it's the same with our Father. We can go to Him, and we can ask in confidence, because He is our Father our Father. But not only can we ask in confidence because of that relationship, we can ask in confidence because God the Son is praying for you. That if you are in Christ, your prayers are heard by the Father as if it is Christ himself praying for you. We read in Hebrews, consequently he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, again, Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. We go to Romans. Paul writes, Who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is praying for us. So we can pray confidently to the Father. But there's more. There's there's one other person. One other person, the the, the triune God that prays for us. Again, back in Romans 8, that Paul writes... That likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So pray confidently, church. Pray confidently because God the Spirit and God the Son are praying for you. So what does praying confidently look like? I mean, you tell me to pray confidently, but what does that look like? Well, maybe asking God for healing while you're researching treatment methods. Praying confidently, maybe asking God for wisdom while seeking counsel and friends and from your pastors. Asking God for deliverance could mean that you scroll away money and trimming expenses. See, God answers prayers through means. 
that he may heal you through the treatment method you found during your research, that he may answer your question, your question through the counsel of your pastors and your friends, that he may deliver you through the discipline of saving money. And so we have to address that. We have to address the, the elephant in the room. So what does it mean to ask in doubt? What, who is James talking about? And so what I think James is talking about asking in doubt is, is I think he's talking to the person that thinks if thinks this way that if you're unwilling to wholeheartedly commit to God, then you shouldn't expect to receive anything. Okay, he is warning those who are toying with following Christ that he he is warning the one who wants the benefits of being the child of God without the hardships of being a child of God. That he is warning the one that treats God like a genie in a bottle. See, God, James is describing the one who has divided loyalty. He's the fence. James is warning the one that's the fence sitter, the one, the, the double agent. See, in, in James's mind, faith is black and white. You either trust God or you don't. You either see God as your rescuer, only rescuer, or you see him as a contingency plan. And I say this because he compares the one who doubts to a wave that is driven by the wind. He calls them double-minded. He calls them unstable. And see, water takes the shape of a container. A wave is at the mercy of the wind. The double-minded person's allegiance is at the mercy of their trial. So wisdom's our anchor. So, see, in order for an anchor to work, it's got to dig into the seabed. It has to dig into the seabed. Otherwise, you and your anchor are going to be carried along by the current. Now, if you're trying to fish a spot, well, that doesn't work. You get to be held onto that spot in order to catch fish there. And so the wise person, the wise person casts his anchor into the sea of trials and trusts he's going to be held fast by the promises of God, despite the fact that the waves are breaking over the bow. And see, the double-minded person asks but doesn't trust. So wisdom is the skillful application of biblical truth. Now, how do we apply it to our life? Well, we're going to start in, in, in verse 2. We're going to go back up to verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want to make a note here that the CSB uses endurance, so I'm going to interchange endurance and steadfastness, but I mean the same thing, okay? And so when we're to take, it, when we're to take into account this, we're to con intentionally consider our situation and count it joy. That biblical wisdom is long-sighted, right? It accounts for the promises of God. See, biblical wisdom sees the purposes of trials. Biblical wisdom sees the purposes of trials. That wisdom understands God uses trials to mature our faith. See, faith is like a muscle. In order for it to be strengthened, it has to be tested. Now, many of you are coaches, high school coaches, or were high school coaches, and you receive a new batch of kids every year. They show up for summer workouts, and to them, strength training is nothing but bench press curls and, and, and crunches. Okay, but you lay out the program, you've got Olympic lifting, you have, they're pushing, they're pulling their weights, they're doing, they're doing sprints, they're doing agility. They follow the programming. They don't know why they're following the programming, but they know they're getting stronger, and you can tell they know they're getting stronger because every time they walk by a mirror, they're flexing. Right? And so by the end of the summer, they're what? They're bigger, faster, stronger. Why? Because they knew the programming or because they, knew, they trusted the coach? They trusted the coach. And so, church, I ask you, brothers, sisters, I ask you, do you trust the coach? 
Do you trust your Father who is going to give to you generously and ungrudgingly? Do you trust Him? See, trials grow you. They strengthen you and they sweeten the taste of the Lord. But I'm not naive and I'm not ignorant and I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I know why you face trials. I'm not, I don't know why you lost your child. I don't know why your marriage blew up. Okay, I don't know why that you were laid off from work nor why you received the health, the bleak health diagnosis that you did. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you why I had friends commit suicide. What I can assure you and what I know and what I cling to is that my pain has a purpose. Your pain has a purpose. Yet we are not part of some cosmic experiment where there's this distant and uncaring God that's subjecting us to experiments just for his mere entertainment. No, your pain serves a purpose. That our God sits high over the battlefield and sees the victory that he is going to bring you, but at the same time, he is in the trenches with you. He is holding the shield above you. And the prophet Isaiah says of the Lord, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live high in the holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the oppressed. See, wisdom sees the purpose of our pain to produce steadfastness. And endurance that leads to a complete faith. So there's an end goal to endurance. We don't develop endurance for the sake of, of having endurance. We develop endurance with the end goal of having a complete faith, a faith that isn't lacking. So what, what does a complete faith look like? Is it a perfect faith? Absolutely not. It's not a perfect faith. Is it a perfected faith? Yes. It is a perfected faith. It's a, it's a, 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 is it an unfailing faith? Yes and no. Is your faith going to be unfailing? No. But is the, is the faith of God that he has covenanted to you going to be unfailing? Yes. That he has covenanted to you, sworn to you, to bring you to that celestial shore. And it is by his name he has sworn that. And if he cannot bring you there, he is not God. But when has God failed you? See, that a complete faith is a faith that is wholly reliant upon the promises and power of God. See, faith, if you boil it down to its simplest form, is going to be this. That I take God at his word. That I believe him. Despite what I see, despite what I feel, despite what I think, I'm going to trust God. And we see, we see a, an example of complete, a complete faith in, in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And we get a fuller picture in, in Romans 1, and we're going to get a full in, in, in 1 Peter. So Romans, or excuse me, Romans 8, it says, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. People usually stop there, but we need to keep reading. We need to go on into 29. Because... Paul tells us in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, and then we go to Peter. Because Peter and James kind of share the same audience in the sense of that to those that they're writing to are going through some really hard trials. Okay? And Peter tells his readers that 
in chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we drop down to verse 9, it says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So to this end goal, the end goal of our faith is to look like Christ, bearing his image, which will result in the crown of life, which God has promised to you, to those who love him. So how do we endure? If we're, if we're, we're, we're to endure, how do, how do we do it? Well, first, we're going to rely on God's promises. That we endure by relying on God and his promises. See, for your faith is a gift from God that he has given to you to guard you and keep you. Going back to 1 Peter in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. Who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. John writes that Jesus says that, And this is the will of him, God the Father, who sent me, so this is Jesus speaking, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. See, God guarantees you're going to endure. Because we have the promise that Paul talks about in Philippians, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we endure by relying on God and his promises. There's another component to how we endure. So we endure through community. Now I want you to remember who James is writing to. I didn't read it, but in verse 1, James says, to the 12 tribes in the great dispersion. Now James isn't writing to an individual, but he's writing to a community, a group of believers. We are to apply the principles and the teachings of James individually, but not in absence of community. We don't apply it in the absence of the church. See, there's, there's, a, there, there's a saying that, that would get thrown around when, in the Marine Corps that when things were less than ideal. It says, misery loves company. Misery loves company. Now, I didn't say this when we were back in Garrison when I had the AC. I was going home, sleeping in my own bed. I was clean. No, I always said this when I was either hot, wet, and tired, or I said it when I was cold, wet, or tired. So misery loves company. Why would we say misery loves company? Well, because it does. Right? The, 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 the burden of misery is lessened through shared experience. Because see, some of the best times that I had in the Marine Corps when things were less than great. Right? It, it was when I was cold, wet, and tired. It was when I was hot, wet, and tired. And it, was, it was when, and like, I mean, I, some, one of the most memorable things was we are in Djibouti. Okay? The Horn of Africa, up in there. This place doesn't get rain. But we were there for a week, and I promise you that, that Djibouti got its annual rainfall in that week that we were there. Because I was, I was, I remember I was on, on the, the guard, and so all of a sudden I'm sleeping. We don't have rain covers on because it's Djibouti, it's hot, it doesn't rain. All of a sudden I start feeling drips. So I'm thinking, crap, I've overslept. Like I've, I've missed my shift, and the guy is waking me up through water because he's not going to come over and say, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy, you need to wake up. It's, it's, your, it's, it's your time to be on shift. No, he's going to bring his canteen and pour it on you because that's just the way we roll. But it was. like It was, it was, it's, it was horrible. Do I want to go back to Djibouti? Absolutely not. Okay? But it was the most fun I never want to have again. <laughs> right, it's, and and that, it, that is kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like life, right? Like we're going to experience life once, and then we're going to go to celestial stores. We're going to go to heaven, and we're going we're gonna to experience our full joy. But it's through community that keeps us focused on where we're going. 
And why, why do we need community? Why do we need the church? Well, James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, we find strength and protection through the herd. We find strength and protection with the body of Christ. I remember growing up that it was back when ESPN used to show fishing and hunting on the weekends. And I remember Tom Miranda, he bow hunted the world. And he was bow hunting Cape Buffalo in Africa. And Cape, if you don't know about Cape Buffalo, they're called Black Death because they kill almost, they statistically kill probably more, more people than lions. And so when you wound a Cape Buffalo, it goes off into the thick bush and it waits for you. It waits for its predator to come stalking because then it's going to flip the script. And so when, when Cape Buffalo, they live in a herd, when they move, there's, there's an order of march, there's structure to the way they move. See, they, they put the young and the weak in the middle, and the strong are on the outside. Why? Because a threat is on the outside. Because they live on the Serengeti, and there's, there's lions, there's leopards, and there's hyenas. Now, I've referenced Peter a lot. How, what is, who, to what animal does Peter compare Satan? To a lion that's prowling around, seeking those whom he can devour. See, Satan would love nothing more than to isolate you. Isolate you in your sin, isolate you in your hurt, isolate you in your trials, and he's going to work on you. He's going he's to erode that confidence that you have in God because you're isolated. But when you're in community, we go shields up. We pull you into the formation, shields up, and we allow and we preach and we pray and we apply the balm of the gospel to you so that through Christ you may be healed. My church is important. So we endure through community. See, brothers, sisters, we're not going to push through this life on our own strength. Okay, let's be real. All right, you're not going to do it. Right? Life is going to eat you up and it's going to spit you out. Okay? But we push through the trials not under our own strength, not under our own wisdom, but under the power and wisdom of God and his assurance that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so wisdom sees the purpose of trials. Wisdom not only sees the purpose of trials, but it boasts in the Lord. James 9 through 11 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. See, wisdom boasts in the Lord. Wisdom boasts in the economy of God. See, to the world, the, the, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom where the weak are strong, the poor are rich, right? blessed are the meek, and, and, and so forth. See, biblical wisdom allows the lowly brother to see his promised future wealth. And biblical wisdom allows the rich man to see the fickleness of earthly riches. Wisdom encourages both of these individuals to pursue that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4. See, what James is doing is James is pressing the fickleness of earthly riches upon the conscience of the rich man. Because surplus often dulls our senses. Surplus often distracts us from where this surplus ultimately comes from. And so wisdom boasts in the Lord. But not only does wisdom boast in the Lord, and not only does wisdom see the purpose of trials, but wisdom sees through temptation. 
Let, so we're going to drop down to 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's, there's two primary things we need to learn here. Okay, first, God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. Okay, Isaiah calls God holy, 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 that God is holy to the nth degree, and therefore he can't tempt. The second thing that, that we need to realize, that we need to learn, and that wisdom is going to teach us is that temptation arises from within. That when we fail, our natural instinct is to shift the blame. And then again, I'm going to go back to the Marine Corps because that's just my experiences. But there's, when we're in a pinch, when it looked like we were going to have to take the onus, there's an acronym that we had. It's called BAMSIS. Okay? So what do you do with, when, when you're in the pinch? Well, you begin the lie. You arrange the lie. You make excuses. You complete the lie. Implicate others and shift the blame. Right? Because, hey, I wasn't me. I'm just doing what I was told. I'm, I just work here. I don't get paid to think. You go through the excuses. We all do it. Right, but, but shifting the blame to others is part of our human nature. Well, what, did, what did Adam do? Right, he, he goes, and he, in Genesis 3, he says, The woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. <laughs> right? God, it's your fault. But not only is it your fault, God, it's the woman's fault. I mean, she just handed me the fruit, and I ate. What, is, what does Proverbs say? Proverbs says when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, what does his heart do? Well, it rages against the Lord. See, and this is, this is what we lose in translation, is that when, when James talks about temptation, the Greek word that he uses, well, it communicates an internal pressure that's arising from within. See, the source of temptation is our radical corruptness. See, sin has corrupted us to our very... And when we want to look for that source, we have to look no further than our hearts. Because the prophet Jeremiah says of man's heart, the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick, who can understand it? Now you may not be bold enough to say God is tempting me, but maybe you say Satan made me do it. No, Satan didn't make you do it. You wanted to do it. You chose to do it. You wanted to indulge the flesh. See, Temptation finds its desires, temptation finds its source in our desires. And we, we have these, these desires, and as, as we learn from, from Cody's series, that we have this given identity. We want security, we want safety, we want affection, we want belonging. But we don't find ourselves in Genesis 1 and 2. We find ourselves in Genesis 3. And so... Temptation takes those good desires of safety and affection, of security and belonging, and it corrupts them. And they, it corrupts them because our hearts are corrupted. See, affection and attention are corrupted, and they develop into lust. When, and when birth develop into affairs and, and a pornography habit, which is going to result in death. That safety and security are corrupted and develop into greed. And when it is birthed, develop into cheating and stealing, which result in and death. See, there's this really, and I highly recommend this book. It's Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And, and in it, he outlines how Satan draws the saint to sin. And one of Satan's devices is that he presents the, he presents the bait and hides the hook. 
He presents the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. See, temptation baits the hook with our desires. The fish is enticed because of it, it because it's hungry. It only sees the worm. It doesn't see the hook. Likewise, when we're tempted, we only see our desire, but not the hook. Now, once the bait is taken, there's only one course with one des- destination. Then temptation is conceived and gives birth to sin, and when sin matures, it ends in death. My dear brother and sister, do not play with temptation. Do not play with temptation. Because once you take that bait and you bite down on that hook, there is only one destination. And another book, I highly recommend this. We're a group of guys and I are going through this. It's Thomas Watson's book, Heaven Taken by Storm. And it's based upon Matthew eleven twelve. And in Matthew eleven twelve says, The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So Watson asserts in his chapter on, on the Christian waging violence unto himself that he must go to war with his flesh, with Satan, the world, and to heaven. That he offers violence unto himself, unto Satan, to the world, and unto heaven. And in a chapter on, on offering violence and, and to the flesh, he says that, that Watson says of the flesh, the flesh is a sly enemy. It kills by embracing. The embraces of the flesh are like the ivy embracing the oak, which sucks out the strength of its own leaves and berries. So the flesh, by its soft embraces, sucks out the heart of, sucks out of the heart all good. And he goes on to say that the flesh inclines us more to believe temptation than a promise. There needs no wind to blow to sin when the tide within is so strong to carry us there. And so Watson instructs the reader to overcome the flesh. There's a response to it. You've got to respond with violence. So how do, we, how do we respond in violence? How do we counter temptation? Well, we respond in, in two ways. One, we, we avoid it. Proverbs 22.3 says, The prudent sees the danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So avoid your temptation by starving it. Watson says, withdraw the fuel that makes lust burn. You know your triggers. You know what situations take honest desires and turn them into temptation, and when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. You know your triggers. Now, how do you avoid it? Well, for some of you, it may mean giving up a smartphone, or, smartphone and going to a flip phone. It may mean getting rid of social media. It may mean giving up that group of friends. And hear me say this. It's going to feel like dying. You're going to make excuses. You're going, it's going to hurt. You're going to come up with every excuse you can not to do that. But remember what wisdom does. Wisdom sees through temptation. But there's another means. So if we, we avoid it, but we also use the spiritual disciplines. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Again, I'm going to reference Watson. Watson calls this provocation of duty. And when I told Allison this, she's like, what's provocation? Like, nobody talks like that. Watson does, but... So what, is, what does provocation of duty mean? Well, it means to stir yourself up to your holy duty. You employ the spiritual disciplines to counter temptation. 
Paul tells us in Romans, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And so what are the spiritual disciplines? Well, these, those are the means in which we fight flesh, such as we read and listen to the Bible. Maybe you're a mom and you don't have time to sit down and read, or maybe you don't have the attention span to sit down and read, but you can listen to it. So read, listen. We pray. We pray. Not lastly, like as a last resort, but as our first resort, our only resort, because prayer is utter reliance on God. That we, we ask him to take away our temptation or to give us the strength to fight on. We worship, both privately and corporately. We hear the word preached. We meditate upon the word read and preached. We fast. We confess our sins to our closest friends. We confess to our friends. We ask them for prayer. We expose our weakness to them and we ask them to strengthen us. So we don't play with temptation. We are at war with the flesh. Make no mistake about it. But if you're sitting here and, and you're saying, I can't do this, well, no, no, you can't. But there's good news, brother. There's good news, sister. Christ's beloved, you are not your old self. You are a new creation. For Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if your shame of your failings is burdening you, if there's a sin that you just can't overcome and you honestly have come to the conclusion that it's going to rule you the rest of your life, hear me tell you this. I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to Paul in Romans 8, verses 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, I had a buddy that I was kind of mulling over this, this sermon with, and, and he, he said this to me. He says, Daniel, he says, no one knows the full power and suffering of temptation except the person resisting. That I'm, I'm, I'm not going to battle alcoholism. That's just not my vice. But if you take me and you put me in the Little Debbie factor, and you, not the cosmic brownie one, the, the glazed honey bun one, or the Swiss cake roll, I'm going to battle, I am going to battle gluttony. You're going to roll me out of there on a dolly because I'm going to be 600 pounds. Like, it's, just, it's just how it's going to be. And so in that moment of fighting, when you're fighting your temptation, don't look to yourself to fight this battle. Don't look to your own strength, but look to Christ. Right? Look to Christ to take the battle for you. See, Psalm 28 tells us of our Lord, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. I am helped. Paul, famous, famous words. What does he say about the thorn? But he said to me, Say, hey, Lord, take this away. Three times he pleads. And what does the Lord, how does the Lord answer him? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore I will boast the more gladly of my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do not play with temptation, but flee to Christ. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Because he gives Graciously and ungrudgingly. 
that Christ is our compass, that, that wisdom is our compass that points to Christ, that we may, be, that we may bear his image. And so if any, of you ask, if any of you lack wisdom, ask for it, because God gives graciously and generously. Now some of you may be sitting here and you may be listening and, and you find yourself identifying with that, that double-minded person. And this is the first time that you're actually acknowledging that you're double-minded. Praise be to God. Why do I say praise be to God? Because you are aware of the gravity of your sin. So I urge you to flee to Christ at once, to be received by him, and he receive you. Believe and trust in Christ. Dear brother, dear saint, if you've faced trials and you're looking for wisdom, know that it can be found in God. Know that it's going to be, not only can it be found in God, but it's pleasing to him to give it to you. So I, I want to tell you what, what Christ perpetually offers to those who search. Come to me, all who are tired, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let us pray. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.